0: Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank.
1: All right. Well, thanks for joining us on another edition of American Potential. We always love to bring stories of great policy champions, and you're gonna you're gonna hear from one today who you recognize and and someone that you see probably quite a lot on. Uh, on television and really a true champion on on so many issues for Americans for prosperity so we're excited to have uh, have this guest today today's guest is a husband a dad of 3 and was raised by a single mom who instilled in him the desire to leave future generations better than the current generation he graduated from Florida State University then went on to work in the banking finance and insurance industry And in 2008, he was asked by the company that he was working for to figure out what was going on in the economy. So he turned on a House Financial Services Committee hearing, and he wasn't very impressed with what he was hearing from elected officials. This led him to start researching and reading books, such as The Law by Frederick Bastiat. And through this process, he learned why our government was formed the way that it was. Well, he was first elected to Florida's House of Representatives in 2016, where he chaired the Insurance and Banking Subcommittee. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he now sits on the Oversight and Accountability Committee, Financial Services Committee, and the House Steering Committee as the Speaker-Designee. If you've ever heard him on the House floor or in a committee hearing, you know he doesn't really shy away from asking hard questions or making tough statements. I want to welcome Congressman Byron Donalds, who proudly represents Southwest Florida's House District 19. Congressman, thanks for being with us. How are you today?
0: I'm doing good. It's good to be with you.
1: Yeah. So so thanks for joining us. First of all, uh, I know that one issue that really is uh, uh, you, both you and your wife are very heavily involved in is the issue of school choice educational choice and the importance of empowering parents would love to hear your thoughts on the great work that you and your wife have done in fact, somebody told me that your wife's the the real power broker is that right
0: <laughs> uh, you know some people might say that you know she probably would agree uh you know for us, education's really just been uh it's been everything. Education is how we were able to get started and, you know, really changing our lot in life from being young kids, you know, who grew up poor <clears throat> to really being able to achieve a lot of things in our professional career. Um, we were both working in finance um, and about, geez, about 12 years ago now, uh, we were approached about helping to start a charter school. And, you know, I was always passionate about education because I know what it meant for me and and she knows what it meant for her. And so we decided to just roll up our sleeves and help. And that school got started it's uh, still in operations to this day. And then, uh, you know, she got the bug, she ran for school board, became a school board member. And um, <clears throat> when I went to the state uh, legislature, one of the things I worked on um, outside of financial issues were education issues at the state level. So, you know, did everything from, you know, passing legislation that allowed parents and community members to review uh, school books and materials that were in school classrooms, uh, to working on the Hope Scholarship Bill, which provided an avenue for kids who were being abused or bullied in in their school environment to get a scholarship to go somewhere else. And it was always about just making sure that you had a, a real economy for education. You know, I know that, you know, people are frustrated with public schools. I was frustrated with public schools. Like my mom was frustrated with my public school. Uh, that's why she pulled me out. You know, she was probably one of the first school choice moms was my mom. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think the way the path forward after really looking through a lot of the the policy issues was, you know, let's just give parents the, the ability to make these decisions for themselves, give them that purchasing power. And, you know, the way I always equated it was, you know, a long time ago, uh, the government in the, in the early 80s, the government, they made a decision that they were, that they were no longer going to be providing food. They would just give people a coupon to go buy food. And a funny thing happened. It was more efficient and there's issues in that program. Don't get me wrong, but it was more efficient than just the government giving out cheese and peanut butter. And right. so if the government thought it was important enough for food, why isn't it, why is it not um, as important for education? And and that's the, kind of the work that drives her uh, more so her now than me, you know, obviously being in Washington, uh, but it's a passion project that we both share.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, there's no reason why, the free market won't help us make better decisions. Everybody can make a decision that's in their own best interest. Parents will do that if given the opportunity. So um, that, that's really great. And God bless you and your wife for the, the, the continued work uh, in that area. So in 2008, when you listened to your first congressional hearing, do you, do you remember what was being said that, that made you to kind of start do your own research?
0: Uh, Honestly, it was was a lot of what wasn't said. You know, I just the members didn't really understand uh, what was happening in the financial system. Very few members were really talking about the fact that uh, it was the underwriting standards that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allowed with respect to what they would buy in terms of mortgages or what they would back in terms of mortgages. Uh, That's what really created the environment that led to our, our financial collapse. And you had a lot of members, unfortunately, who were blaming the big banks and as somebody who got their start in, 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 in banking, what was happening on the ground didn't line up with what was being said in these committee hearings. And, you know, it just pissed me off. Right. And I, I just really couldn't understand why people who were supposed to have all the information be our leaders, be our experts. They knew less than I knew. Um, it probably still occurs for a lot of Americans today. And so I think that's the real frustration uh, people have. And so, you know, I was, I'm not one to complain a lot. You know, like if you see an issue, you know, try to learn and do something about it. And so, you know, it just really started me down a journey that really has taken me to Congress.
1: Right. So, so you, that led you, did that lead you to read the law by Bastiat?
0: Well, actually, what happened there was after being frustrated with what was going on, I started watching a lot of news and trying to figure out and understand politics, and what was going on politically. And around the same time, that's when Tea Party rallies started happening um, across the country. And so, you know, I saw an ad for one and I said, you know, I'll just go and see what's going on here. A lot of people at at the time, the media was calling them racists. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I'm going to just find out for myself. I'm not just going to listen to what somebody says on the news or what somebody else tells me. And so when I was there, I met a couple people, and one of them recommended that I read the law. And they were like, this would actually be, be a really good book if you really want to understand more about conservatism and, 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 frankly, the thought of basic law and what it means for a civil society. So I took that, read it, and it was really eye opening to me. It, it actually explained a lot, it clarified a lot of what our issues were. You know, in the United States, which are still issues today. In some respects, have gotten worse. And um, you know, from there, it just took me down that that journey of of finding out that I was actually a, a conservative, and probably pretty conservative. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it was crazy at the time because at the time, you're just thinking, I'm just a guy. I read this book. All right, I got to go back to work. I got to take <laughs> care of my family. But what it really did, it, it helps me start to really engage engage in politics on the local level and and kind of get a chance to meet a lot of the players at the time who were involved politically and what they were doing and what they were passionate about and i was really just learning the many aspects of 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 not like electioneering and and campaign politics but just politics in general and and the big dichotomy between you know liberty and, and and uh and tyranny or 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 conservatism and liberalism or however you want to phrase it
1: right now, because you have this background in banking and finance, I, I mean, that must really have shaped, shapes your view currently, I'm sure, on the economy and what's happening in the economy. I, it's always great to have people who've been in uh, an industry to help, you know, oversee that industry. And that's what you're doing in Congress. But how does that shape your view of what's happening?
0: Well, I, I think it was really helpful uh, because I had a background in, in economics and the background in how our financial system works before I ever really thought about our our political system and how the implications of what happens in the political system impacts our economic system so you know one of the books I you know one of the things I did is I watched you know a bunch of the you know the YouTube uh, clips with free to choose with Milton Friedman and I was yeah, down, watched those debates great. and they were interesting to me uh because you know growing up in the inner city there was a cross-section of you know maybe some of the issues of, that you know liberals on those shows were trying to address but then you could also see the downsides uh that 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 conservatives or in the case of Milton Friedman uh libertarians would bring as a, as as the downside results of these policies that were being pushed and it was able to really help me focus my economic background my economic mindset helped me understand politics and actually helped shape my politics to a large degree you know i, I say to a lot of people You know, if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And that's really because, you know, you can design any political system or any political program you want. But if it doesn't begin to take on its own inertia and be able to sustain itself economically, then all it's going to do is be a drain on money that is borrowed in the future. Um, It's going to be a drain on other people's desires to go out and innovate. It's going to be a drain on our economy. And that's not a, a successful project. So I kind of always look at things politically through that lens. If it's sustainable economically, then it's something that makes sense politically. And then you can go from there.
1: Right. You know, you mentioned uh, the the Milton Friedman series, the Free to Choose series. And it is, I have gone back on YouTube and I'd encourage anybody listening to go do that and, and watch those. What always strikes me when I watch those and, and you know, they're they're certainly dated. They have, everybody's wearing big ties and big collars, right? But uh, the debate. I mean, we just don't. You don't see that kind of a debate much on TV anymore, and it's it's kind of refreshing to see that the back and forth. And Milton Friedman never backed down. I I just loved watching him in those. They were super great. Um, what are what do you think? You know, one of the things we try to focus on on this podcast are the the ways in which government sets up barriers and impediments to people's success. And I I think we're seeing that in the economy for sure right now, the government tell us some of the ways you think the government is slowing down the economy and really the, the quality of life for the citizens.
0: <laughs> well, to we need more than 20 minutes, man. We, we got a lot <laughs> to cover. That's right. um, I'll start with the big stuff and try to work my way down into yeah. a couple. Uh, sure. The first is, you know, the, the actual mechanism of quantitative easing at the federal reserve. You know, I think that this is something that's caused uh, significant issues in our economy because it has devalued the, the purchasing power of the individual dollar. Um, one of the great misconceptions in our politics is that, you know, the rich are always getting everything and the poor get nothing and they get stepped on. But the reality is, is that it's the destruction of purchasing power uh, by quantitative easing or, or printing money, however you want to phrase it, that's more destructive of the poor than anything else. Yeah. Um, I never want to bridge anybody from being rich, shoot, be rich. That, that's cool. You know, when I leave politics, I want to go make money, too. But mm-hmm. if every dollar buys less product, everybody suffers, especially the poor. And so that's why printing money, quantitative easing um, is a significant issue. The second big thing is we've been in this situation for the last 14 years. The Fed kept interest rates at basically zero. And what that does, it makes money so easy to borrow that nobody makes actual economic decisions. They're just, you know, basically playing uh, interest rate decisions. Well, that doesn't produce a, 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 a economy that is has a drive in and of itself. It's an economy based on massive amount of stimulus and any economy based on that amount of stimulus at some point is going to hit major issues. Who gets crushed by that? The, once again, it's the poor. When it comes to financial regulation, the worst thing we've done in our country, in my view, is the Dodd Frank Act after the 2008 recession. You know, we were told uh, by the pundits that it was going to stop. It was going to cause. It was going to stop too big to fail. That the big banks were going to be brought to heel. Big too too big to fail will be over, and it would save our economy. Well, actually, the opposite has occurred. The big banks have gotten massively bigger. Community banking has basically basically been eviscerated to the tune of 70 percent in the past 13, 14 years. And so who does that hurt? Once again, people at the bottom, uh, people who are trying to build businesses, trying to find access to capital. Well, there's not as many banks as there used to be. And there's definitely not as many small community banks who would take a risk on a mom and pop venture. Whereas Bank of America, Wells Fargo or Citi, they're not going to do that. So, you know, when when, you know, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, when they like to talk about, oh, regulation is needed to save the consumer. What regulation actually does is it stops the innovator. It stops that 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 person in the middle of our economy or at the bottom of our economy from trying to rise. And what you find is the large companies, they have more than enough money to deal with the regulation. The rich, they have more than enough money to deal with the regulation. And they go on. I'll give you another one. Tax policy. Our tax system is so convoluted. The only way you can really take advantage of it is if you have a tax accountant. Well, who suffers from that? People at the lower end. Um, Furthermore, the the government says, oh, we we miss out on all this money. So they want to hire all these new agents, 87000 new IRS agents. But who are they going to go after? They're going to go after middle income Americans. They're going to go after they're going to go after the poor. Uh, Why? Because the federal government is trying to find every penny possible to pay for its profligate spending. And so who suffers under that is the poor. We can talk about energy policy. If you if you decide that we have to save the planet because of climate change. okay, that's a noble goal. But how are you going about doing it? We are we are essentially buying solar panels and wind turbines from China. They're our greatest adversary on the globe. Well, what happens when you when you substitute coal for solar coal is significantly cheaper than solar power is solar power is heavily subsidized, more so than coal or natural gases. And so if you want to go follow green, renewable energy, the energy on the electric grid is going to be more expensive. Well, who suffers from more expensive energy? Once again, it's the poor. I mean, like I said, I could go on and on and on. But the reality is, is that we have to find a way, politically speaking, for Americans to understand that the path to prosperity for all of us is not found in government regulation and government programming. It's found with unleashing the American people uh, to pursue their own interests, to to, to pursue wealth. And yes, pursuing wealth is a good thing to innovate and to have all the different tools and abilities to build wealth for their families, which is also a very good thing.
1: Yeah. And, it, you know, you you raise such a good point when we talk about some of these policies, these economic policies of the Biden administration. They really are hurting the middle class and, and the less fortunate among us. Those are the people that pay. I mean, you just take inflation. That's not going to hurt someone uh, who is making millions of dollars a year. But it is going to hurt that single mom out there who's you know, just trying to make ends meet. And, and that's an important point. And I think it's been lost in the debates in Washington.
0: Oh, it, it, listen, first of all, are there debates in Washington? That's a better way to put it. <laughs> right. uh, one of the issues I've seen, you know, being a member of Congress for a couple of years now is the members. We really don't debate these issues. And it's really mm-hmm. a stru- it's really how the place is structured. Every member of Congress gets their five minutes to do their their speech or their talk or their questions. Uh, there's hardly anybody else that's even in the committee hearings to hear them uh, on the floor. Most of the members are not there. When we're actually debating a bill. Again, somebody's recognized for a minute or two minutes and they give their speech about what's going on. But the other side does not listen. There is actually very little debate in Washington, which is which is eye opening to me, having served at the state level where the members are all present in committee and on the floor. You have very vigorous debates on these issues that does not occur in Washington. It's actually something that I I think we should change, you know, in this. But before we took over the House is one of the things I I I recommended. A lot of the members that didn't, didn't agree with me, but I recommend it because if you have more vigorous debate about these issues, it actually will help to clarify a lot of things uh, between the members of Congress and actually good policy would follow for the American people. Yeah. What, what
1: most surprised you between when, as, as you were a candidate or before when you were in the legislature and then getting to Congress? What What surprised you most about being in Washington, D.C. and being in Congress?
0: uh really how toxic it is how toxic the environment is um how little republicans and democrats actually talk to each other like it's it's really eye-opening like you you have to go out of your way to try to talk to a democrat for a democrat to talk to a republican Mm -hmm. i mean we mostly pass each other in the halls we're in elevators we don't say much to each other like i said in the committee rooms we barely talk to one another um on the on the floor if you ever see the house floor you know, typically the Republicans are on one side, the Democrats on the other side, and the two shall not cross, you know, the right. middle aisle. It was very rare for somebody to cross the middle aisle just to have a right. conversation. Yeah. Um, it's it's very it's a very uh partisan environment. Forget the politics, the, the environment is is partisan. And yeah. I think in part that's because, you know, when I first got uh you know, went for orientation, the Democrats did their orientation, the Republicans did their orientation. The new members were hardly ever in a room together. We were up there for 10, 14 days. I think we might have all been in the same room for like two or three sessions. And in those rooms, you're in this big auditorium and you're just being lectured to. There's no engagement. There's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really uh, one of the more concerning things about what's happening in Washington. Like, you know, if you don't know your colleagues by first name, how could you ever sit down and figure out what you could work on?
1: Yeah. Have you been able to break that down on a personal level? I mean, are there Democrats that you've gotten to talk to and you know, you may not agree on policy, but you can talk about kids. You can talk about the hobbies, things you like to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, I think probably the most famous example is, you know, Jamal Bowman and I on the steps of, of the Capitol going back and right. forth. But the only reason why that could even occur is because Jamal and I talk about football. <laughs> when we see each other, usually we talk about football. Jared Moskowitz of Florida, we serve together in the Florida House. So when I see Jared, we talk, we engage. We know we have political disagreements. But then we also can try to find other things that we could work on. Uh, Nakima Williams of, of Georgia, uh, she and I knew each other when we were in the state legislature. She was in the legislature in Georgia. I was in Florida. And so we know each other from from that time. Um, but it's really it's really difficult. Like I think the the number one thing is just being cordial to people when you see them, try yeah. to talk to them and engage with them. Uh, yeah. but but it's it's different. It's really different in Washington. It's pretty difficult to accomplish.
1: Yeah, and I think that that really breaks down uh you, you know, if you can get someone to understand you and talk to you about other things, then that'll take the edge off a little bit and you may be able to talk about solutions for America. And so that's important and I think it has become a very toxic uh, environment, no, no doubt about it. Let me ask you on on inflation. You talked about inflation and and how much that's hurting the American people. What what can we do? Uh, now we obviously know that we're we overspend, so so that's a big a big thing we've been doing for decades now. But what are some of the things that we can do, and Congress can do, and the President can do to help reduce inflation?
0: Look, the number one thing is you you got to cut excessive spending. I think. You know, inflation has been something that's always been talked about. And really what happened was, you know, Joe Biden wanted to have his his uh, stimulus package with his name on it. And early on in his presidency and that amount of money going to our economy that fast is what is what started the inflation. And you Mm -hmm. couple it with the fact that people were being paid to stay home and then you created a labor shortage. So they created a labor shortage. At the same time, they were pumping vast amounts of money into the economy, and voila, there goes your inflation, and it, it just sparks. So the, yeah. the number one thing is, it's always about the velocity of money from the government going into our economy. So if you don't want to have rampant inflation, we gotta control spending. You know, in Washington, the biggest problem I see is everybody just wants to continue to spend, but nobody wants to really evaluate the efficacy of what they're spending money on. Like, okay, we're giving you ten billion dollars. Did it actually work before I give you another two billion dollars? If it didn't work, I'm not giving you anything. And, you know, that sounds normal in everybody's life or everybody's business. But you say that in Washington and, you know, it's it's almost like you have leprosy. People don't even know how to how to how to to handle that. So there's a lot of that that has to get done. The second piece is, you know, as members and I got some homework assignments I got to do about this. In real time but we have to go through these federal agencies and really understand if what they are spending money on doesn't even work anymore has it lived past its purpose uh, do they need to continue to do that and if you do what are the more efficient ways to get it accomplished um, i think that's a that's a big second thing the third thing is we're going to have to figure out a long-term debt issue we can't just continue to borrow money uh, at this rate, because that's going to create another uh, inflation uh, cycle that could be even more damaging, in my view, than the current one we've, we're dealing with right now.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the exact reason for inflation, and everybody knows it. In fact, we talked uh, about freedom to choose in Milton Friedman, and he defines what causes inflation in free to choose, which is you know too much money chasing too few goods. And you talked about covid Coming out of COVID, it had both of those, right? A, a stimulus bill that's, that put too much money into the economy, coupled with supply chain issues uh, and too few products. I mean, it was, it was really the perfect recipe for a disaster, correct?
0: No, it was. And I, I was on the budget committee when, when this was going through. And, you know, we told, you know, we were telling congressional Democrats, like, this is what's going to happen. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. Um, but you know we didn't have the votes and you know elections do have consequences. We didn't have the votes to stop it. and it, it really really set back so many Americans um, for multiple years. And you know I know the talking points now is oh the inflation is coming down. Well, that's not true. The inflation rate is coming down, but the impact of the inflation on higher prices remains. Like those mm-hmm. higher prices are there. they're now sticky if you will. Uh, they're not transitory uh, the way that it was told to the American people early, early on. And that's going to be create its own set of economic issues we're going to have to contend with.
1: Yeah. And I think the American people are smart enough to understand that. It's a little bit of uh, trying to change expectations. You know, they'll, they'll say things like the price of gas has come down. Well, it isn't anywhere near where it was when Joe Biden took office. So we shouldn't just accept that. And it could be much lower if we had better government policies on energy,
0: right? Not could, would. It would be much lower if we had better uh, governmental policies. But again, I think a lot of this is by design. It's being done on purpose. You know, you have a desire from people on the left side of our politics to, quote unquote, save the planet. And so for some of them, they believe to do that by any means necessary, But the means upon which they want to use is the pocketbooks of every American. They have no problem driving up costs for everybody to accomplish their goal. Uh, But, you know, we were in a hearing one day and I I said to a bunch of these guys, I was like, listen, you want to spend four to five trillion dollars chasing renewable energy to possibly cut the, the global climate by a half a degree in 30 years. And I say possibly because we spend all this money and they don't even know if it'll actually happen. That's a bad business deal. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not giving you that kind of money for a maybe 30 years down the line or 20 years down the line. That doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. Now you serve on the budget, you served on the budget committee. Tell us what, what should Congress do when it comes to the budget? I mean, there's gotta be lots of reforms in the process that would truly make a difference.
0: Well, it was actually just said by a colleague of mine, that if companies budgeted the way Congress budgets, these companies will go to jail for embezzlement. So let's start yeah. there. I think our budget process is a joke. It makes no sense. It's politically driven to hide pockets of money uh, for people to be able to pass stuff and get it done. The, the first couple things are, one, we, we absolutely need a balanced budget amendment that actually caps. And this is the key point now caps tax rates because a pure balanced budget amendment would mean oh you could raise taxes and that should raise you know and so on a on a model basis that balances the problem when you raise taxes it dries up economic activity and that causes its own problems of again for the american people so i think you got to have a balanced budget amendment that puts cap limitations on tax rates uh there has to be an ongoing process where agencies and their and their various departments are being reviewed on a continuous basis. Uh, so much of the federal budget is ca- is is controlled by what they, we call the budget baseline. So if you spent a trillion dollars last year, you adjust for inflation, you might spend one point, you know, one trillion, 500, 500 billion this year. And then they say, OK, you're just continuing consistent spending. Well, no, the spending's going up because you're increasing the baseline. And in Washington, if you were supposed to spend 1.1 $1. 1, $1, $1, $1, $1 trillion, 500 $1, billion, but you only spent a trillion, 200 billion, they call that a cut. That's how Washington speaks. Right. But that's not what the American people say. If you spend 200 billion dollars more, you didn't cut spending. You just increased it at a lower rate. So that's right. the kind of stuff that's got to be fixed. If you can do that, it goes a long, long way. The last piece is, yes, we are going to have to reform Social Security and Medicare. Uh, there are ways to do it that protect uh, that protect uh, a people who are on these benefits right now. Seniors. There's a way to do that. Um, you could do it in a constructive way, but the political dogma associated with it really stops people from understanding that we can solve these problems and get our country on a healthy on a healthy track. But you got to have the political will to do so. And at the end of the day, that only really comes from the voters. Last thing that really concerns me uh, at the current pace, Interest on our debt, paying interest, will be more than paying for our defense department. It will be the number one line item in our budget. When you, when your country gets to that level, that's just simply unsustainable, and that's to the detriment of the entire United States.
1: Yeah, wow, that, and that's it. That should be sobering to every American to hear that uh, for sure, Congressman. We just got a minute here left, but what, what's some? I mean, why are people so hesitant in Congress? To change the budget process.
0: Well, honestly, I think it's because they're not concerned how citizens will react to it. Um, a lot of my colleagues, and listen, I, you know, they, I respect them. They 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 work hard. They represent their districts too. But it's not even about the actual programs we're spending money on. It's about what does what does it mean back home? Will somebody run a negative ad against them? How will they be able to you know message this to constituents? And I, and I find that if you do the right thing and you have reasons for that and you can explain that and it makes sense. Like, again, it makes dollars and it makes sense, then your voters will will reward you because the American people are tired of Washington doing what Washington has always done. They want people to go make the hard choices and get our country on track. And I think if you can if you can demonstrate that, uh, then we can be successful. And I think the, the other piece of this is, and this is really a problem in all of our politics, not just budgeting, is our media is a joke. I mean, this it's just ridiculous. The things that they focus on and the things that they choose not to focus on are one of the reasons why our country is so divided. And so we have to do a significantly better job of getting the real information, facts and truth to the American people and stop with the political dogma, which just divides us for no reason.
1: Congressman Byron Donalds, first of all, thanks for joining us today. But most importantly, thanks for being such a great policy champion and really a patriot for America, trying to solve some of these very difficult problems that are they're hurting every single American. But thank you for joining us today.
0: No, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.